The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, untangle your earbuds and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 410 with guest Robert Martin, recorded live Saturday, November 21st, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just had pot roast with a side of Code Mash, Carl Franklin. Hey, thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. And we are at CodeMash. We, we just recorded a .NET Rocks Live, which will be online pretty a shortly. A couple of weeks, yeah. In a couple of weeks. Bill Wagner is here. Hey, Carl. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing good. And thank you very much for the bourbon. And uh, Richard and I are going to have a drink here. Now, to your um, health, sir. This is an empty bottle of Maker's Mark, which we just shared with the entire panel. And uh, Bill, why don't you tell us a little about it? About the panel on the bourbon or about the bourbon in general? Yeah, about the bottle. About the bottle. So, my, as I said in the intro in the show, my uncle works at Maker's Mark as a um, bourbon taster, or registered bourbon expert, and as a, uh, gives tours for VIP tours. And at the distillery only, you can get labeled bottles of Maker's Mark with, you know, personalized for friends or whatever. And I had him get one for both of you guys, since you're uh, so nice to come out here in the middle of Ohio in the middle of winter. And... Uh, that made for a very interesting panel. It really did. And it was a good panel. We, it did get a little fuzzier towards the end of the it panel. It did. And now I know that you want, to, uh, now you want to hear this show, but this show is coming up in a couple weeks. The show that you're going to hear now, we recorded at Ordev with Uncle Bob, Bob Martin, in Malmo, Sweden. And that was fun. Right? Absolutely it was fun. All right. Let's roll the tape. Hi, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We are live at Ordev in Sweden, Malmo, Sweden to be exact. And we're sitting here in the warmness of the conference center, the Malmo Masan Conference Center, while it's snowing outside. Indeed it is. It's, uh, it must be wintertime here in be. Sweden. Uh, and we're in the south, too. I can't imagine what they're getting buried in in the north. Oh, well, it's been snowing for a while up there. Well, anyway, we're sitting here talking to Uncle Bob, Bob Martin. Good to have you back, Bob. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to be seen. Good to see you. Yeah. All that. Sir, you were keynoting today. What was, I was the topic? I was. Uh, black holes, um, uh, surface area, entropy, things like that. And craftsmanship. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wow. Surface area, entropy, and craftsmanship. Yes, That's what I yes. like about you. You're narrow focus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very specific things. And we've, you've been on the show before talking about, uh, actually talking about craftsmanship as well. Yeah, I think we did a phone interview, didn't we? Yep. Yeah, it was a lot the, of fun. The old-fashioned way. Well, this is kind of weird. I mean, we all get to be together. We don't get to do this very often. <laughs> so dive into a little bit about uh, what you were talking about this morning. The topic today was, was craftsmanship. It's one of my favorite topics. I, yeah. I do it all the time. Uh, the basic idea is that as a, an industry, we need to raise the bar. We need to yeah. 
convert ourselves from a group of laborers to a profession, a profession that has well-known disciplines and, and standards and personal responsibility. Uh, so I talked an awful lot about, about some of the basic things that software developers uh, should change about their attitude. Uh, for example, um, software developers know what to do to deliver software to their to their customers. Yeah. Right? They are they are responsible for having that knowledge. Uh, they are not um, laborers that are told to do this or that or another thing. We're by, not just stamping out their the managers. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yes. So I like to I like to think of software developers as doctors and lawyers. Yeah. The, professionals. The, the professionals. And and you know in in a doctor patient relationship, who's right. the boss? The guy with the saw. <laughs> the guy with the, 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 the boss in the patient doctor relationship is the patient. Right. The patient is paying the doctor, and right. yet the doctor has the knowledge and the skill. Is the professional. Is the professional. Yeah. So, in that sense, I think developers need to raise the standard of, of who they are and what they are uh, so that business comes to development and says, you're the professionals. How do we do this? Now, we wouldn't be in this situation if it weren't for how software development got started, which was anybody who had a computer was a candidate for software developer. Anybody who messed around with I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know in the software development business who are engineers turned software developers. They went to school for mechanical engineering, or they went to school for chemistry, or they went to school for biology, or some other science, or they didn't go to school at all. They just picked it up, and then they, you know, and then they got into it that way. Is, is that a fair statement? I think it is a fair statement. Um, there, there has been, for a very long time, no good notion of what the disciplines of software development really are. Yeah. What, what would it be if it were a profession? We didn't know how we were supposed to write software. The best we could do was kind of cobble it together and see if it worked. And I, don't know about, I don't know about you, I didn't go to school for computer science, but um, in the college classes that I took, they were way behind the, the curve of current technology. Um, you know, maybe it was just where I went to school. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry for laughing, but, but um, that's just a, um, kind of the way that is. Uh, yeah. I used to interview people all the time. Uh, to, to hire them for jobs. And, yeah. and uh, it was remarkable that the folks who went to school and had degrees um, would come out of school with you know, almost no knowledge about how to write software. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, isn't it, a computing science degree isn't really about writing software. Is no. it? I, I, in fact, know, knew one, uh, one person who got a master's degree in computer science, never wrote a line of code. Wow. Couldn't That's write awesome. a line of code. That's incredible. How do you do that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I would think there'd be at least some code. It doesn't mean you know. How, I mean, knowing how to write code and knowing how to actually build an application, I think, are two different things. But I mean, a computer science degree involves some level of. I mean, they talk about operating systems. They talk about parsers. They talk about stuff that is you know sort of low level to that. Well, there's nothing wrong with knowing that stuff, but there's there's something wrong when. You can go through an entire degree program and not be able to Maybe your do friend hello went world. to a correspondence yeah. school or something like that. No, no, no. This was you know, big school. The real thing. You know who makes the best school. programmers? Yeah. Is musicians. Thank you very much. It's not just, My friend the musician. For some reason, that seems to be a, very a strong true. correlation. If you yeah. have musical talent, uh, it turns into some kind of software talent. Well, it's been a long time since we talked about this on Don and Rock, so I may as well give my theory again, because a lot of people have theories. Uh, you know, there's... It's obvious that the correlation between math and music is there. Yes. And then the abstraction of music as, a, as an art form, it's very, it doesn't exist, just like software doesn't exist. And then, but I, th I tend to think that the skill of learning an instrument has a lot to do with both being very technical mm. and being able to zoom down into a low level to, to work on very technical minutia and then being able to present a presentation at, at a larger scope, at a 60,000-foot view. And so the ability to sort of zoom in and out like that is something that we're doing all the time as, as software developers. I mean, the, the symphony is made of individual notes, and every, right. every individual note is important, and, and you it must see all fit the layers into its once. places. Yes, and, yeah. and you know, a piece of software, the lines of code and the, the processes and the operations all have to take place at just the, yeah. the right time. So, yeah. Uh, I think it's a, a very interesting that we have not been treating software as an art as much as we've been trying to teach it as a, an engineering discipline. Well, yeah. and, and there's a big part of software that does seem very engineering-like, too. 
I, sure. you, I can equate a program to a bridge in the sense that uh, it can be beautiful. It can be beautiful, you know, but a bridge but is first, art. it must carry cars across the river. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's it? two different sides <laughs> of actually doing the work and then, you know, doing the work well or doing the work elegantly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very true. So uh, where do you fall on that, Bob? I mean, is, isn't it engineering as well? It is certainly it's engineering. Both. But, but it's, it is not strictly engineering. Okay, and in right. fact, there is no strictly engineering anything, right? Yeah. All, all things used by people have to be um, well-designed yeah. to fit into their environment, but they also have to be beautiful. Yeah. And this notion of beauty, this notion of artistry, of craftsmanship. Yeah, is a, a value to elegance. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And especially in the end product, I mean, which is <laughs> something that is uh, just beginning to be important, I think. In the software world, you know, the whole idea of design, of user experience, and all of this stuff. Yeah. It's always been important, but not to us as developers. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, we've been satisfied with Battleship Gray. Mm. Or our bosses have, anyway. But I, the, one of the reasons I got into programming was because it could satisfy both halves of my brain. Both the, you know, the left and the right half, because I am a musician. Mm. You know. now, the other interesting correlation is, is the correlation with our martial arts. Interesting. Uh, and there seems to be a, a lot of programmers who have been tied into martial arts. Somehow. Interesting. Uh, and, yeah. and so you wind up with um, the notion of learning software development from a master. And the master uh, is hmm. the sensei. And the sensei tells the, the juniors what to do without necessarily explaining exactly everything. Hmm. And bit by bit, uh, they learn from the master the pra- practices and the disciplines. Yeah. One of the things I've been doing... Uh, over the past several years, is writing uh, kata, uh, software kata. These are um, uh, things that you practice, little bits of software that you write over and over and over again. Is that again. a Japanese term? It is. Uh, kata, for example, uh, if you're taking karate, uh, you will learn a set of moves, and your instructor will not even explain what these moves are about. Yeah. They'll just say, okay, you move this way, exercises. you move that way. They're exercises, they're etudes, they're scales yeah. that you might yeah. play on a on an instrument, something that you do repeatedly over and over again mm. to hone your skills. Mm. Uh, in the case of these software kata, they're silly things like, mm. you know, do the bowling game, do prime yeah. factors, do something else. Right. But do it over and over again in a certain way mm. to hone your skills the way you use your IDE, the way you use the, the code you're writing, yeah. the decisions you make each time along, so that when you face those problems in real life, your muscle memory yeah. is what is driving it. But well, is there also an element there of, of coming up with doing the, the bowling game the best possible way, and that each time the language changes out from under you, you do it again. You know, yep, like, of course. That reflex course. I have when a new language is confronted me to build the CRUD app. Of course. I, f- yeah. I find there's value in just taking what skills you have and giving it an old college try and then finding out what went wrong, learning from your mistakes, and then seeing how you can improve next time. There's a lot of value in mm. that. And when I first started developing, uh, one of the things that really got me going was having a, a goal, an end software project in mind that was beyond my scope. Mm. And on every day I worked for that goal, and you know, it was difficult, but by the time I got through it, I, I thought, well, you know, if I only had known what now, you know, then, what I know now, going through the process. And isn't that interesting? And I mean, then I we, do it again. We are constantly trying to stretch our, our abilities. So yeah. you start out as a junior programmer, and you think, oh, thank God I wrote that one function. I, I'm a programmer now. Yeah. And you get, you get to a middle le- level, and you realize you've written an entire subsystem, and the whole subsystem uh, works well in your environment. And finally, you achieve some kind of uh, very senior status, master status, and uh, you have... You have been the driver on an entire system, and you have yeah. coordinated a team. We, um, we do things in a funny way in our industry. Uh, what, uh, there's a new project that needs to be done, and some manager will say, um, yeah, you, 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 and you, team, go build it. Yeah. And the way to do that well instead would be to find a master, mm. someone who has built a system, and right. have that master then go and gather a team around him yeah. or her and and build the project that way. Mm. Uh, we don't do enough of this um, personal training, master to student training. The, we, the coaching model of 
a coaching sure model, a craftsmanship yeah. model, yeah. an apprenticeship model. Sure. Uh, it, that would be a better way to bring people into the... I, it's, it's something I said just recently, that it is, it, I don't feel like we have a good apprenticeship program for software development right now. We, we don't. They're right. in we school. throw programmers into a room and throw meat in and hope and, code comes out. Yeah. yeah. Pizza. Pizza. Well, pizza, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Pizza and Diet Coke. <laughs> Diet yeah, Coke. okay. Um, yeah. Dude, Snickers yeah. bars. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and hope, but I, I feel like more than ever right now, we have a real gap between the trainee level, fresh out of school, and the productive developer. And, and I see more and more companies simply unwilling to bridge that gap. I hire senior folks only. You know, there just sort of seems to be a mindset where there's just not a lot of energy for Unfortunately, the apprentice developer. I find them hiring junior people only. Really? Way too often. And they hire and a whole bunch of junior people and say, well, they're programmers. They ought to be able to do this. Yeah. yeah. It's out of school. Programmers don't know enough to build a system. Right. So they make a terrible mess of things, and maybe they manage to get something to work, but it can't be maintained, and the the company is going, oh, what the heck happened here? Why can't I add new features? How come it's breaking all the time? Right. Oh, I've got a bunch of young young apprentices trying to build a system. No master. Well, there's also the whole problem of people misrepresenting their skill set. Yes, and how do yeah. we deal with that? And how do you how deal do, with that? So one of the things I'm interested since in the is the internet that, came out, the bullshit detection <laughs> has been easier to do. One of the, the models I'm interested in is a guild model, uh, where you can create a, a trusted source. Uh, you go to the guild and say, okay, guild, I'm interested in hiring that guy over there. Right. And what do you know about him? And the guild says, ah, yes, he's a member in good standing, and these are his accomplishments, and these are who he's worked for, and, and we've looked at his code, and we like his code, and, yeah. and so forth. Um, I think that kind of model might be useful uh, if we could assemble guilds. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that really... The key I don't of like that. certification. Yeah. No, neither do I. Well, certification, certification makes sense if there's an authority backing it that requires... Real accreditation. I mean, yeah. it, we, we talk about the medical boards or the, the bar. Yeah, not, then you trust it to a right. certain extent. But they're right? also... Right. Someone has passed their medical boards. I, like, okay, yeah. okay. They've got certain skills. But I think, you know, the On guy the who hand. passed them has some skin in the game, right? Oh, yeah. If, you, right. if you've passed the bar, now oh, yeah. the bar is responsible for that lawyer. Yeah. Well, and... A doctor, right? doctor goes. Yeah, he's going to go uh, operate he, on somebody. He better well, know he's what he's doing. He's got to go through his internship. He's <laughs> right. got to go through his residency. Yeah. All of his instructors are, you know, signing on the line saying, "Yes, yeah. this yeah. person really has learned." By the time he gets out and can practice, there's a whole train of trust, a chain of trust that's been developed. Yeah. Right, right. Sure. And, and proof of competence. And so, but the point being. If and when a malpractice suit shows up, it's not just him. Exactly right. Yeah, you know, it's the other sure. guys who. Sure. So now we get into and an interesting problem. If we're going to create an association for masters of software mm-hmm. development, we need that association to be liable yeah. for their yes. members. Yes, personal responsibility about, again. Well, look at this. What software quality is there, right? Look at the end user license agreement. What does it say more, more than anything then? If this software breaks tough, <laughs> it's your fault. Yeah. Right? We assume no liability right. for any losses incurred by you using our product. And the software developer, if he, fail, uh, if he ruins a project, he gets fired, goes to another company. If the doctor kills somebody on the table, he's got a bigger problem, he doesn't does. he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then the developer who ruins the project usually gets promoted to manager so he can ruin uh, it anymore. Right? The Dilbert principle. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or goes to, you know... <laughs> Goes to another company so we right. can go Somewhere off. Somewhere we can do the yes, least amount yes. of damage. Well, the really talented one actually left about a month before we figured out the project was ruined. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, yes. The one who was too fearful to take control if or he knew what was going wrong. smart enough to uh, see yeah. the writing on the wall. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint? Number of server requests. There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. 
I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to Telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. So I, well, have, I have this issue, you know, this personal responsibility issue. Yeah. And I look at the, um, the Challenger explosion. You remember the space sure shuttle do. Challenger blew up in 1986. And the engineers who were responsible for the O-rings around the, uh, the boosters that failed right. um, sent memo after memo to management saying, you know, this thing is not going to work at these temperatures. Right. One of those memos was very famous. You know, this is a red flag. You cannot launch. And the managers, of course, ignored all of that because the, you know, it had always worked before and the vice president was coming and this would be embarrassing if we delayed the launch again. Uh, the engineers actually refused to watch the launch. When it was televised at their office, they all left the room right, because they were so afraid that something was, was going to happen. Right. And so the, the engineers have been praised for their willingness to speak out. And I have a completely different view. You know, those guys knew it was at stake. Right. They should have gone to the press. They should have gone to anywhere they could to stop that launch. Escalate. Instead of allowing their managers to override them. Yeah. Right. That's professionalism. Yeah. Yeah. They should have escalated. More than they did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, because the launch still went ahead. And, it and, did. The con- and they were right. Mm-hmm. And being right isn't good enough. If being right is not good enough. You have to have the, mm-hmm. the courage of your conviction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So, he says self-assuredly, yeah. but... <laughs> so let's apply this to software, I mean, because it's an interesting dilemma. We, they, we, you know, I don't know that we have necessarily an O-ring equivalent. Oh, well, I, how many times have you been involved in a project where you knew that the, the design of the system was simply not good enough? Right. Or that, um, simple case, there's a module over there, it's got an author... It is defective, constantly defective. The number of defects in it are always, always high. And what do you do about it? You, it's not your module. No, you wall yourself off from it as much as possible. Okay. Protect yourself. Right? right. And the the professional thing to do would be to go over to the author of that thing and say, "What help do you need?" Because yeah. as a professional, I can't tolerate this in the system that I'm involved with. Right. If you have to yeah. escalate it, do so. But the first thing you do is go to the sure. go to the person and say, "Look, you're needing some help here." Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I think the classic one is the absolute disbelief in deadlines. The, the, the company's telling you when the software needs to be done, <coughs> but I've never met a developer who believed the deadlines he had. It just just ignores them. The software's always going to take longer. It's a tough one. It's uh, a tough one. But, Usually not dealt with until we're at the deadline and not there. Yes, yeah. Um, often often um, managers have been so burned by missed deadlines that they will shorten the deadline. They will say, well, I actually need it in January, but because these guys are always late, I'm going to tell them I need it in November. Right, right. And then the, then the development team learns that trick, and so they understand that when the manager says November, they really mean January, so there's no credibility left. And they deliver in April. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> we had a discussion at TechEd on software quality, and uh, it was a kind of an interesting discussion because on the one hand you had the, uh, you know, the, the test-driven people and the, the, the quality the people that were saying, we want to ship software with zero bugs, that's the goal. Mm. And on the other hand you had people who were saying, well, you know, if it's going to cost a million dollars to delay it by a month, uh, for bugs that aren't critical, let's ship the software, you know. So, uh, and in the end, I think it got to be a bigger issue than it really well, there's, there's ought nothing, to have been. Nothing wrong with, with deciding that you are going to deploy software that has a certain level of defect. You know, business can make that decision and say, oh, okay, right. the defect level is, is down to this level, it's okay to deploy it. Yeah. No, nothing wrong with that. Um, the thing that bothers me is that the development organization has tolerated the rise in the level of defects in the first place. How did that happen? Yeah. And how did the developers release software that had defects in yeah. it without knowing it? How did that list accumulate to be thousands and thousands right. of defects long? Well, we want to use tools and methodologies that prevent those things from happening so well, much. Well, tools and methodologies are fine, lovely, yeah. but it's personal responsibility. Yeah. How did this 
happened? Who was watching this? How did you release code that had this bug in it or mm-hmm. these bugs in it? How did you do that? And then stop that. But it, like I said, there's, there's an acceptable level of error as well. Like no I-beam is perfect, but it's past the minimum threshold. It's always true. It's always true. And, and no matter how disciplined you are, no matter how perfect you are, there are going to be defects in your code. Right. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not you are willing to tolerate them. We've also as had, a well, developer, well, as a professional, yeah. do you do, do you tolerate bugs that you know are there? Do you release code that you aren't certain about? There's another problem that both Richard and I have had in various organizations run into. That is, the software team has delivered uh, a product that is up, you know, to the spec and bug free, gone through QA, yep. and is ready to ship. And management comes down and says, "Great job." Okay, before we ship this, we got to add this feature, this feature, this feature, and it goes back for another iteration. Sure, sure. Few, few sure. more months go by, sure. whatever goes by, and this happened over and over and over again. Sure. The end result being, no, never ship the software. Uh, I mean, have you, have you had that experience as well? Oh, certainly. So it's, certainly. That's, so and it, that's it, thrashing at a completely different level. Totally. That's yeah. a management thrash. I mean, here we've got a development engine yeah. that's working, yeah. and, uh, and a management that... that can't define a product or changing their mind. I don't know yep, about yep, your yep. situation. For some reason doesn't want to ship. I don't know about your situation, but mine was they had a few customers that were just local, uh, in this case it was medical software, local doctors who were demanding that they wouldn't, you know, they were trying to desperately sell the software and, and they would come back to these few customers who would say, we're not going to buy it until it has this. Yes, right. Yeah. You know, and, and it really takes, you know, a tough nut to say, this is version one. Use this, get up to speed on it, and then, you know, version 2 will have this, version 3 will have this, etc. But, uh, yeah, those, that's an unfortunate situation as well. Yeah, it, and it certainly happens. It's, it's, not, it's not all that uncommon. It's, uh, the business has the same problem that, that the development team does. They need to yeah. understand requirements just as, right. just as we do. And yeah. the way they can do that is to build a product and then show it to customers. The customers go, no. Yeah. Right. And then they got to go around the loop again. Right, yeah. right. And that's very frustrating to the development organization. Of course. But if you're in a, a brand new product environment, sometimes that's just the way it goes. Yeah, yeah it takes a few iterations to get yeah. the product in the shape the customer really wanted. So that, sure. you know, development teams need to understand that the business is also iterating. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah it's interesting truth that the business is iterating. It's trying Businesses to always about. iterate. Yeah, yeah. That's what businesses do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And CEO runs his business by uh, every quarter going to the team and saying, okay, what are we going to deliver this quarter? What are your projections? And then at the end of the quarter, you know, oh, we didn't make those projections. You were going to change something about what you did. Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't the development team do the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're a big agile guy, if I've read correctly. Yeah, big A, yeah. Big A. Mm -hmm. Agile with big A. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't look that nimble. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Yeah, I could do a dance for you. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, it's interesting to look at the practice of Agile. How much of that is really focused on the delivering of software in a timely manner? I mean, the, the joke I get back from folks all the time is, is, you know, nobody seems to be able to estimate how long a piece of software is going to, be, going to take, but the Agile guy's convinced you don't want to know anyway. I don't understand that view. The, the whole point of Agile is to, is to find out when the software is going to be delivered. You know, the, right. reason, the reason we do Agile is so that we can measure our velocity and then project when we're going to get to certain deadlines. And by doing those sort of short sprints, they, the, the small milestones, we're able to, we have points of calculation Absolutely. so that we have a better yeah. way to project. Yeah. So it is, it is impossible to say that you are doing Agile if you're not measuring your velocity. Sure. Right. If you don't have the burn-down chart on the wall, if you don't yep. have the velocity chart showing how fast you're going, how many features you're implementing, every feature, every, every iteration, mm-hmm. um, that's not Agile. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, so if, you know... If you are sitting there going, well, we're agile because uh, we don't write any documentation and yeah, yeah. Uh, we just kind of do whatever we, we feel like cards. doing and we're, we're an emergent <laughs> team, we're a self-organizing team. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're a self-organizing team, mm. but you've got to be working in short cycles. You've got to be measuring your, your velocity. You've got to be showing it to management. Management's got to be looking at it and going, yeah. oh, cripe, we're not going to get where we need to go on time. Yeah, right. What do we do about it? Yeah. Because it, it's, I, I, it's sort of an insight there, which is if you're doing this thing properly, management automatically knows where yeah, we are. It's on the wall. Right. It's yeah, just a big chart on the wall. So they know oh, how far oh, away we are. We're not going to be there on yeah. time. Oh, there is no, something. no, at the end of the quarter, surprise, we didn't make it. Mm. You've looked at it every week. Right. Exactly. Mm. 
So you have this constant progression of you know, how far away are we? We're not getting. We're not going to make it. Definitely going to make it on the first week, but you know, time goes by. What's your peeve of the week, Bob? Ooh, my peeve of the week. Uh, my peeve of the week is the notion that Scrum is to blame for the fall of agile development. What? Wow. Yeah, I, 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 there's been a few few articles written about this lately. Um, the people are saying, "Oh, agile development is now failing. It's it's no no good anymore because." Uh, what's happened is that Scrum has come along and there's all this certification that's, that's happened has uh, created a bunch of people who really don't know what they're doing and they're going off and training Agile teams who really don't know what they're doing and so Agile is failing in because... So the certified Scrum masters aren't really... Uh, aren't really well, it's cutting. all nonsense. It's all nonsense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, it's, first of all, this isn't Scrum's fault. I was trying to fault. define the argument. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but the yeah. argument... Well, okay, go ahead and define the argument. No, 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 it's just going to... I'm just reiterating what okay, you said. Okay, all That's right, all. all right. So, so I got nothing. It's all nonsense, right? Yeah. The, the The reality is, first of all, Agile's not failing. It's doing very nicely, thank you. Right, yeah. More and more people are doing it and getting success yeah. with it. Are there companies who have adopted it incorrectly? Of course, there always will be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, fine. Um, are there companies that are failing in spite of the fact that they've ad- adopted Agile correctly? Yes, that happens as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. The Scrum community has done the Agile world a big favor by doing this certification thing. And I, I was not a fan of certification when it first came out, uh, although the very first certification course was taught at my office. Right. But it apparently has done more for the Agile Agile world than any other singular thing hmm. because it has made this this popular draw people want to become certified they want yeah. certified scrum masters so everybody's out there enrolling in it and adopting agile because of it well, the so other it's, side it's of a that, credibility engine though. it's well it's a credibility engine which is good mm. yeah mm-hmm. now the other side of it is, is is that the certificate only certifies that you've been in a course for, course for two days right. it doesn't certify like all any certification talent or skill. you pass the test right. And you didn't even pass the test. You were just there. You took you the class. Showed up. Oh, so there's no test to be there's a no certified test. There's no test. You just... You, you, oh, well. You've okay. been there. You, you, yeah. you heard them speak. You got blessed at the end. Um, wow. So and, and everybody knows that. So on that side, there is a weakness. And it's one of the things that I'm annoys me about I'm not a fan of testing, it. but, I mean, you've got to have some kind of credibility. Well, you'd think so, right? Yeah. But in, in balance, I think the Scrum community has been much more positive than this negative. And the certification thing has been more positive than this negative. Okay. And, and most teams that, that do fall into the trap of doing Scrum and then realizing that they don't have any engineering skills, mm. uh, quick, quickly turn around and say, oh, well, what's missing here? Oh, mm. test-driven development. Oh, mm. continuous integration. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, we'll go do that too. You know, none of those things are optional. Like you, you actually need the full competence yeah, well, you skills. Do, you do need to have yeah. good engineering skills, especially if you're doing Agile. Because if you, if you start doing Scrum and you're going fast, you will go fast with Scrum. Mm-hmm. And you're going fast. If you don't have the disciplines in place to prevent the mess, then you mil- build a mess really fast. Yeah, mm-hmm. fast mess construction. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, okay. And, and for the first few sprints, that's great because you're getting features out and everybody's happy. And then, and then all of a sudden you start slowing down mm-hmm. because you've got to fix the mess and make a mother mess so the engineering skills come into play and a lot of us find ourselves in teams that have adopted scrum and then you know a few months later it's like well what are we missing well here's what you're missing you're missing test driven development you're missing continuous integration there's this pair programming thing that's really interesting you should try it right well and 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 to that point it's easy to blame scrum for that then Rather than go, it's harder to accept the fact that you've, you've messed up your, in your engineering right. practices. Yeah, but I don't blame Scrum for that. I mean, no, I'm uh, certainly you wouldn't, but I'm sure others would. Yeah. Well, that was my peeve of the so week. So that's the peeve of the week. That's the peeve yeah, of the week. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I think we, we heard somebody talking about this sentiment here. I can't yeah. remember who it was, but somebody expressed that same sentiment that Scrum was a big problem. Yeah, I don't and, think it's a big problem. Yeah. But yeah. It's, yeah, it's actually, you know, it would only be a big problem because it's been so productive now there's enough people involved. There's the, there it is, right yeah. there. Right? Yeah. You're starting to see. Yeah, there's been see so much success over. that there's this fringe of failure. And, oh, my goodness, oh that's my a God. problem. And that'll take yeah, the whole yeah, thing yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, 
Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. Actorreports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. So this is a conference uh, that is not just about .NET, and it's just not, not just about uh, .NET programming. There's Java represented here. The alt.NET guys are here. There's all sorts of technologies. Have you been dipping, your, uh, dipping into any of these other uh, talks and, and seeing what else is going no, on? No, actually I haven't. I, I got here this morning. My schedule's been packed. I haven't okay. been to any other talks or anything. You've wow. spoken so, at sorry. You've <laughs> spoken at multi-technological. Oh sure, lots of times yeah, before. I, yeah, mm-hmm. go to West. West and, are you not actually a .NET centric guy? Are you? No, I'm not. Yeah, no, no. I'm yeah. most of my time right now is spent in the Java world. Right. Some yeah. in .NET. I know. I can. I can write .NET. And I can spell it. I, yeah. can, I can bring up Virtual Studio. Studio. Visual right. Studio. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting to you out there, technologically wise? Technologically wise, yeah, okay. In the wise. .NET world, or, uh, it doesn't matter. Well, no. okay. So, um, I have been interested in Ruby for a while. And, yeah, you know, I'm following the whole Ruby thing, and I go to some of the Ruby conferences mm-hmm. and talk. Uh, I think that's a very interesting and vital community, uh, and they're doing uh, fascinating things, and they're generating a lot of a lot of uh, energy. Yeah. Um, Beyond that, there's the Scala community. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sort of on the opposite is, end. Yeah. Like well, right. sort of. Sort yeah. of on the opposite end. Mm-hmm. Very strongly statically typed, and not a mm-hmm. name, but interesting is this functional language. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that I found interesting. And then one of the things, I don't know if I mentioned this in the phone call with you guys, but uh, I picked up a book that I should have read 30 years ago, but didn't. It's uh, the, structure and, the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs by Abelson and... Mm. And uh, I can't remember his name. Huh. Uh, it's the book about Lisp. Okay. And oh, I'd, wow. ne- I'd never learned Lisp. Yeah. So I started reading this book. It's a fascinating book. It's an absolutely fascinating book. It starts with you know, Lisp, which is this language that has virtually no syntax. Yeah. Almost <laughs> right. none. Except for parentheses. It's about lots of parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> that is the syntax. Yes. The parentheses. And then the book begins to walk through basic computer programming. It mm. talks about procedures and procedures, you know, returning procedures and taking procedures as arguments. And for about 200 pages, they go through virtually every part of computer programming there is. They've actually touched on object-oriented design and, and you know, high-level structures. And, mm. and I'm into this thing 200 pages later, and, it's, and the book moves at warp speed. Mm. And I realized that I'm at a page where they have just now, at the 200th page, introduced the assignment statement. Wow. The, all these wow. pages all before there wasn't an assignment loaded a statement. value in a register. And I didn't notice it. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, we've gone through everything. Now we do assignment. And they make this big fuss about assignment. Now this changes the rules entirely. Wow. Oh, now that you have assignment, everything is different because before you had assignment, you could predict what all of these functions would do, but now the assignment statement (laughs) will change the value of variables in ways. It's a very compelling argument. They had done this whole book in a functional style without saying a a word about it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And then boom, function, uh, assignment statement. And then they go on for another 50 or 60 pages. Dealing with the problems of assignment statements, right? <laughs> wow. And then they introduce concurrency. Huh. And they in- introduce concurrency as just the next kind of assignment, the next complexity in assignment. Because right. now, not only can you change the state of variables, but you have no control over when that right. state is going to change. Right. <laughs> so it's just the next the next order the next complication <laughs> in state change. So I'm, I've been fascinated by this book, and I wow. should have read it years and years ago. Yeah, but it's a, it, I mean, what a great treatise on the concepts of functional, functional programming. programming. Well, and, and programming in general, but yeah. functional programming up to that point. Yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like in the, in the 80s, when, when, when Lisp was, was the big thing, you know, that was one of the big things. But back in that time, there was a battle between the object-oriented languages, and the functional languages existed then as well. And, yes. And, and obviously, the objects ended up dominating. Yes. And now it seems like we've come back around and went, okay, we've uh, gone as far as we could go with the whole object yeah, thing. We've got Scala. What have we missed? We've got Erlang. Yeah. 
Very interesting. It's very, yeah. I'm just trying to figure out, is it, did we hit the wall with objects and that's what stimulated functional back? One of the, um, the architectural argument. So one of the, one of the stimulators here is the, the idea that we cannot make individual processors faster. Any faster. Yeah. Yeah, The architectural problem here. But we can add more processors. And that means there will be concurrency even if we don't need it. That's right. And how do we deal with that? And concurrency in a functional world is trivial. Yep. There is... No, you just thing have to learn conditions. how to not change state. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and we've had Subtle 20 problem. years of taking state for granted. Yes, right. Assignment yeah. is the first thing you learn in Absolutely. every language, right? Yeah. yeah. A equals one. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Not anymore. Not, not anymore. anymore. <laughs> yeah, don't you I, be doing I don't that. Even cons- I don't even know how to write a function without an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> it's an yeah, interesting problem. It is. Thinking that a totally different way of, of programming, a totally different way of thinking about the problem. Mm. It's backwards. Well, or forwards, and or the other forwards. one is backwards. Just different. But yes, okay. we are. Yeah, writing left yeah. to right, writing right to left. Just different. Well, I, I, I certainly think that functional, the functional stuff will find its place in an object-oriented world, hmm. and that's the that's where I'm that's where I'm thinking it's going to go. I, I know people who think that, and I think you said it too that, uh, you know, you'll be able to write complete, you know, CRUD applications. People will be using functional languages for all this stuff. In the future, I'm not so sold on that idea, but because because we've got so many, so much history with objects and so much code out there that is object oriented, there there has to be a way to sort of, and I think F Sharp does a good job of this, that that sort of allows us to do the things that require functional programming, to use that, and you know the rest of the stuff that works just fine without it. Mm. Yeah, it was Ted Neuer that called F Sharp the object functional programming. Ah, yes, okay. Or object functional language. And like, apparently, Scala has similar kinds of. Yeah. Uh, and this gets into the whole polyglot. Yeah. Notion, the polyglot programmer, the programmer who knows so many languages right. that he applies the one at just the right time. But that doesn't seem to be human nature. Don't we tend to get good with the hammer and just keep whacking away? Ugh, so, ugh, so. But I, I, I think we did bring this up before, but it's worth talking about again. Is, is that I think the tendency is to want, we've all, certainly in the land of the CLR on the .NET mm, side, mm. we've been told, hey, write whatever language you want. It yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah, mix yeah, and match. It's, yeah. Everything's fine. Yeah. But most apps I look at, even worked on by lots of different people, they're in one language. Usually. Well, Usually. well okay, now two. think of a, 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 um, a web well, yeah, system, now you're right. going to say HTML, HTML SQL, 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 all these, XML, right. the configure XML, yeah, there's a lot of languages yeah, so there. Plenty of languages all, all have their niche, and right. it's a very well-defined niche. Yeah. If you're writing programs, usually yeah. it's in one language. Right. Yeah. Although there have been plenty of you know, high-speed de- high programs where you'll write part of it in C, part of it in assembly language, yeah. or part of it in Fortran because of the different benefits. Yeah. Well, and as soon as we play games with frameworks, we know those are written in something else. We don't, we don't have any control over what they're written Usually, in. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess maybe it's when it comes to code maintenance, the code that I have to own, I prefer to be in one language. And I can certainly see, I could certainly see uh, uh, in the .NET space, certainly, F-sharp playing a, playing a role in that as a secondary uh, assembly a uh, set of assemblies in in an object oriented application just because the, the, the of the of the the things that you can do with it that you just can't can't do easily mm. but i think it's in the middle tier i think that's that's where it's going to be i don't think i don't think it has any place in user interface for example couldn't say yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, i could think of because well, as soon as you get into concurrency when you think we're going to have multi cores on the desktop there's opportunities for concurrency there yeah yeah, you'd think the browser is going to be managing all of these little processes and well, stuff on the screen. Does right now? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you like the. I'm trying to lay out the taxonomy here right? because we've got the scalas of the world, the sort of functional side of things, and then you got the Ruby side of things, which is the the DSL or the, the you small know, talk world. Yeah, small yeah, talk yeah, world, yeah, and yeah. then somewhere in between these two are so the poor old object guys going, "What? What? We've been working <laughs> for so long. What went wrong?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like modeling the real world with these things. What are you doing to me? Our well, industry goes through these waves. Yeah, yeah, you know? it's true. And and the waves it's are inexorable. Bad. That's right. It's not it's bad. Not it's bad. good. Well, the, this is a, but this is a very long cycle. This it's been a long time that that we we've, we've been 
I mean, objects have been a dominant language for... Objects for, have, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we go back to uh, 86 and you saw yeah. C++, C++, and C++ start coming up. And before that, it was Smalltalk and Objective-C, but I mean, nobody did those. And Steve right. Jobs kind of gave a rebirth to Objective-C. Yeah. By the way, do you have an iPhone? Does it crash a lot? As a matter of fact, I do have an iPhone. Did it run out of memory? Uh, no. It, uh, mine does. It'll, it, memory leaks. I have, have rebooted every crashed. once in a while. I have crashed. Uh, I'm using Safari, and I go to a page, and it just uh, goes away. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then you reboot it. I'm done. Yeah, you've got to reboot it. It's yeah, on, the phone you know, is on Objective C programs. They have memory leaks. Nice. Uh, nice. That's that. Okay. That's where we were going with that one. We're talking about the iPhone. Huh? Okay. Well, it's yeah. all the languages fault. That is, it's all the languages. It's all the languages fault. Right. I, do, I, do <laughs> I, I, I do have to show off this. My favorite application, Bob. Here uh-oh, on the iPhone, uh-oh, uh-oh. and and look, it's crashing right now. As oh, a matter yeah. of fact, no, I, it's not. This is my favorite application. It's the Woo button. So you pull it up, and it's a page, and it's got a single button on it. And, wait a minute, let me. Oh, oh, oh. Hang on a second. Got it. Uh, turn up the volume. Turn up the volume. Turn up the volume. So here's what happens when you press the Woo button. Go ahead, press it. That's all. That is awesome, right there. This this sums up the whole reason I got into programming (laughs) to press a button and have it go. Okay, so yeah, I got to tell you a story. All right, if you got time for a story, yeah. So uh, I was working at a company. It was telecommunications company, and a hardware engineer, good friend of mine, is building a, a circuit to test relays. And the circuit's got a little computer attached to it, and he's mm-hmm. written a program that just cycles the relays. Click, cool. click, 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 click. So what are you doing? He says, well, I've got to make sure these relays still work after 100,000 operations. I say, you got a computer program driving that? He says, yeah. And I look at it for a minute. I think, you know, we could do better than that. So I got my little programming console out and toggled in a little program. And, and by the time he came back a few hours later, the thing was playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. <laughs> and I'm buzzing the relays. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, music with vibrating relays. Yeah, you got to do it. You got to yeah. do, do something. Yeah, absolutely got to do something with it. Farm man function. You know, we, we've sort of stepped on this idea that, you know, we're blaming Objective-C for the memory leaks mm-hmm. thing. That, uh, it's interesting to think about safer languages versus more dangerous. You know, why did we move over to C sharp from C plus plus? Well, we, Java for that matter, or even Java, where we got rid of our need to do the memory management ourselves, sort of stripping away the responsibility for the plumbing code, mm-hmm. making sort of safer development spaces. Uh, and I mean, memory certainly, but we still managed to have memory leaks anyway. Well, yes, languages. of course, and there's always going to be resource leaks and. And, you know, defects of that nature. But the safe environment has proven to be a better idea. Right. Yeah. Now, I used to be on the other side of the argument. I used yeah. an old C++ bigot. Get me closer to the metal. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Want those well, macros okay. yeah, and those templates. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not a summer. Right. Right. Uh, I want pointers to pointers to pointers to pointers. Come on now. Yeah, several years of, of uh, working in Java and you know, garbage-collected languages, and I'm thinking, eh, yeah, this wasn't a bad idea. But, you know, there are still memory leaks, but you you got to... You gotta kind of be falling asleep on the job to get them, you know. I think, whereas in C plus plus, you you know, one little, it's, one little yeah, character, yeah, yeah, one yeah. little asterisk can ruin your whole day. It's very well, it's Samuel Coolidge, right? A phone call, and now the program's ruined. Yeah. Yeah. I called yes, away. Blown the mental model That's out of it. my That's mind. Right. Yeah, 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 when C plus plus crashes, it crashes hard. Oh yeah, yeah. It's not like uh, you know, well, whatever. Well, you remember the old way of developing Windows? Remember the Periscope board? It was, a, it was an ISA board you shoved yes. in the machine, and it would snapshot memory. It had a, literally had a push button. Uh, soft no. ice. When, you no. bombed, when you bombed Windows back then, when you're writing C in Windows, and you messed up, the machine was hammered. You had to yeah, hard re- reboot it, and so you lost all your debugging information. So this <laughs> so is something that literally snapped a copy manually? of memory. Yeah, yeah. you pushed a button. It was a red push button. <laughs> And it would yep. snap a copy of memory out of the machine into the board to protect it while you rebooted the machine. <laughs> oh. And then you were able to go back and use that board to look in to see what the state of memory was when you hammered it. I yeah. see. Which is where you find out, yeah, I forgot to clean up X. That's what it always was, right? But you, you couldn't diagnose it without these things. We are an amazing species, aren't we? That, we can, <laughs> that there's some guy who sat down and figured out that that would be a great product that would sell. <laughs> yeah. This is so completely screwed up that they need a new board. <laughs> and they can push a button, just make a snapshot of memory. 
Well, he had enough awesome. style to make a nice. It was a nice black fist size handle with a red button on top. <laughs> all, these, all these programmers have that in one hand. Oh yeah. About it. <laughs> well, that was exactly it. When the machine froze, oh, yeah, as soon as the mouse stopped moving, right, the keyboard doesn't work. Or the, my big one was when the caps lock key light wouldn't yeah, change. That's it. Now yeah. you know you're hammered. Press the that's button. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, guys, we're we're just about out of time. Yeah. Well, something to think about. Okay. We have, for the last 40, 50 years, been writing programs. And if you compare the programs we wrote 40 years ago to the programs we're writing today, they still have if statements, they still have while loops, they still have variables. It's still the same medium. Still logic. We have tools that have been built up around it. But the medium we're working with, the clay that we manipulate, has changed very little in that period of time. I wonder if there is a new clay. Well, functional programs get rid of some of these things. Some, they, they certainly some, deal yeah. with them differently. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and languages like Prolog twisted around yeah. in a completely mm-hmm. different way, and languages like Forth twisted again. Yeah. But well, it's still... Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, were we ever going to get rid of the if statement? I, mean, I don't know. It's logic. Yeah, it's basic, uh, when I do branching. this, I want to do this. Uh, if we cannot get rid of the if statement, I, I believe we can. I don't think there's a problem with the if we statement. Well, well, well I, uh, right. I like the if statement. You will, if you cannot get rid of the if statement, you will always have programmers. Right. Yeah. There's no way to write that magic program or that magic language that finally says that, that customers can write their own software because they don't yeah. need to be technical any longer. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. If you're going to have if statements, you're going to need programmers. I'm still need programmers. waiting for the day. I'm still waiting for the day when a non programmer can walk up to a machine, talk to it, and have a little conversation and a discussion, yeah, maybe a long discussion, yeah. and then out pops some software. Yeah, yeah, I'm waiting for that day too. Everything's yeah. nice. Yeah. You yeah. can't even do that with a human. No, yeah, it's true. <laughs> but you got to figure if they ever come along with that, the guy who does the talking would be a programmer. He better be pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, he'll be a programmer. <laughs> he'll be a programmer. <laughs> Just say it. What do you know? It's like George Jetson. My button pushing finger is killing me. All right, guys, that's the show. Thanks, Uncle Bob. Thank you, Bob Martin. Good to see you gentlemen. guys. Thank you, sir. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a